Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, we've all been cooped up for a couple of months now. And by now, maybe you've found a new routine. Or as states start to reopen, maybe you're still searching for stability. Either way, it's fine. Give yourself a little grace, because this is hard for everyone. And maybe you're in a position where you're fighting off some old addictions. Or even if you just know somebody who's struggling with addictions. I hope today's episode will give you a little bit of comfort and inspiration. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are talking with one of my favorite voices from the South, Tommy Tomlinson. If you're a fan of this podcast, you would love his weekly show out of Charlotte, North Carolina called Southbound. Tommy approaches the South and Southerners with a sense of wonder, and he has a great talent for drawing out interesting conversation. And he's written memorable pieces for the Charlotte Observer, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and more. But when we met at Auburn University earlier this year, we sat down to discuss his powerful new memoir, The Elephant in the Room, an unflinching but humorous look at Tommy's struggle with weight and food. As the book starts, Tommy weighed 400 pounds, and over the course of the book, he chronicles his efforts month by month, day by day, to lose weight. And he also examines the culture and personal anxieties that contributed to his weight gain and made the weight loss process so daunting. It's a story about food, a story about the South, and a story about addiction. But it's also a story about hope and resilience. So let's dive into this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Tommy Tomlinson, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Yeah, hey, John. You are on tour right now for your paperback, The Elephant in the Room, a beautiful, vulnerable memoir you published last year in 2019. It's about your career, it's about your marriage, and ultimately, it's about your struggles with weight. You start the book in in kind of blunt terms, saying at that point you weighed 460 pounds. This was, uh, I think, New Year's Eve 2014. And you chronicle over the course of a year your efforts to lose weight healthily and slowly but surely. How did you decide to write this book at that time? You were 50 years old at that point? I was, and it had actually been percolating for a while. Back in 2011... I was working for the Charlotte Observer, and we decided to do a series of stories on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And I was on my way to New York to do one of those stories, and I called up the guy, uh, Sloan Harris, who's my book agent, and said, I'm coming to town, can we just get together? And I, I say he was my book agent, still is. At the time, I'd been his client for five years, and I'd produced nothing, just some ideas that he didn't like that much. And so I got there that morning, we met at a diner, I got there first, and he came in behind, and he asked what he always asks, 
when we get together, which is, what have you been thinking about lately? And in that moment, I decided to really tell him. And what I told him was, the night before we got together, I Googled the interior of that diner to make sure there was a place that was comfortable enough for me to sit. Because when you're a fat guy, a booth can be trouble if, it, if the table doesn't move, if the bar stools are bowled to the floor. Tables are best, but if it's rickety or narrow arms, that can be trouble too. And I did this little soliloquy about how I felt like my whole life was just arranged around what I could do or couldn't do as a fat guy and how I was tried for years to get better, but I had not been able to do it. And I knew that if I didn't get healthier soon, it would kill me. And when I got done, he looked at me and said, well, dude, that's your book. You should write that. And I knew he was right, but I was afraid to do it. I was afraid of what I might have to reveal about myself. And I was afraid of what my loved ones, people I cared about, would think if they knew the real me. So I didn't do anything about it for three years. In 2014, I did a story for ESPN the magazine on a guy named Jared Lorenzen, quarterback at University of Kentucky back in the early 2000s. And was known for being the biggest quarterback anybody had ever seen. People called him the Pillsbury Throwboy. And as I started to do the story on Jared, I realized and sort of saw the way that I might be able to write about myself in a way that would be meaningful to other people that I could also live with. And so I wrote the story about Jared, and I called my agent back and said, I'm ready to write my story. Jared, we should note, tragically passed away last summer. He did. Do you know if he read your book? I sent him the book, and he sent me a note saying nice things about it. You know, I don't know. Jared was not a big reader. (laughs) I don't know how much he actually read. I told him where the parts about him were. Yeah. But he's a great, great guy, really well-beloved, so beloved in Kentucky especially. They had a big memorial for him at halftime of a football game last year. He just never was able to get over that hurdle and died when he was 38. And when you spoke to him, or when you wrote about him in 2014 at that point, I think he was around 400 pounds. He He had not... Been on a scale in a while, but he was 400 plus and ended up being 500 plus before he died. And the relationship between a a writer and their subject isn't necessarily a a friendship, but I've heard you say that you saw parts of yourself in Jared. You know, what went through your mind when you learned he had died? Well, first of all, it's, you know, but for the grace of God type thing. Um, Secondly was I wished I could have figured out a way to help him more directly You know, I think telling his story helped him because, first of all, a lot of people reached out to him with sympathy and with, you know, advice, things that he sort of sorted through in the same way that's happened to me when my book came out. And also, I just felt for his family. You know, I talked to his wife, who he had divorced by the time I did my story, his mom, kids, all those people, people who had coached him and played with him. All those people felt a deep sadness as well. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about them. And you mentioned you weren't necessarily able to help him directly, but I know in a piece that you wrote about him right after he died, you talked about other people that that story might have helped and people that your book may have helped. What have you learned in this last year about yourself since the book has come out? And then also, what have you learned about other people? What I've learned about myself mostly, and this was in the process of the book, I guess, more than anything, it was a lot of awareness about the things that made me big in the first place. As I tell people a lot, if you have 20 pounds to lose, you could probably figure out how to do that one way or another, whether it's Weight Watchers, the latest fad diet or fasting or whatever. If you have 200 pounds to lose, 
the how is never enough. You have to start trying to figure out the why. And in my case, why I got so big is sort of the, the journey I go on through the book is kind of figuring that out. There's a lot of reasons. So it's, it's a mix of lots of things in the same way it is for everybody. So I learned a lot of those things, you know, about things I felt like I missed out on when I was a kid. Certainly the culture I grew up in that sort of celebrated and uh, memorialized in food as a, not just something good to eat, but like a very symbolic thing that carried a lot of meaning with it. And then the same stuff that everybody else deals with, uh, sort of cultural things in this society where, you know, it's sort of this arms race as you can deliver the biggest portions for the least price and all that sort of thing. The same thing that everybody is, is dealing with. Then when the book came out, I learned certainly, and this is something I'd hoped to write and part of the point of writing the book was to say that you're not alone in this struggle. There are lots of people out there dealing with it. And I heard from thousands of people, I have heard from thousands of people who struggle with weight and with other things um, because the sort of the symptoms, the causes are often parallel if you have problems with alcohol or gambling or whatever. And so what's been really meaningful to me was to hear from all those people who felt like they felt less alone after reading my story. Is there a sense that people have now where because you have shared your story with them that they can give you unsolicited advice or coach you or come up to you and hold you accountable in a way that you didn't necessarily plan for? Um, undoubtedly, <laughs> yes. Advice especially. So part of the fast volume of emails and messages I've gotten have been from people who said, you know, try this one thing. And I thought when the book came out, I would get a lot of commercially oriented things where people are like, try this and we'll pay you or something like that. Oh, yeah. But what I've gotten mostly is really heartfelt things from people who said, you know, right now the big thing is intermittent fasting where people they eat in a, like a six hour period every day or they eat for a day and don't eat for a couple of days or whatever it is. Um, a lot of people suggested I try that and they've suggested everything, paleo and, and the Atkins diet and all the things that you've heard of or sort of flowed through your consciousness right. over the last few years. People have suggested all those things. As far as accountability, I mean, I think certainly when I run into people on the street who've read the book, and that happens, you know, fairly frequently in Charlotte where I live, you know, they always ask how I'm doing, where I'm at, am I keeping up with it, all that sort of thing. And and rarely does it feel like sort of drill sergeant. <laughs> right. It's like people are concerned yeah. and they want me to keep getting better. And so I'm, you know, been pleased to report that I've, I've still doing well. Well, we hadn't met before today. I listened to your book, which is great. And I've also listened to your podcast. So I, I felt like I knew your voice in some ways. And, you know, by the end of the book, yeah, we're all rooting for you, I think, to accomplish your goal. But then there were also times where I was rooting for you to give yourself a little bit of a break. <laughs> you know, you know, there are times where you're very hard on, on yourself. And I think that's good. I think it's raw and vulnerable. Uh, there's a, one point that I think stuck out to me in particular, where you had reached out to a number of your friends and basically asked for them to say to you directly all the things that they had maybe kept from you in the past. Yeah. So it really helped for me to do this book that I had a long career as a journalist and had written about other people many, many, many times, including at some of the most sort of intimate and difficult moments of their lives. So I had a lot of experience with asking the hard questions, you know, making choices to include difficult stuff in stories. And so when I set out to do this book, I decided that I would hold myself to the same standard that I would hold somebody else if I was writing about them. I, I want to try to make a certain point in a story. And what material do I have that illustrates that point? And so I use the best material. Now, if that's material that happens to make me not look so great compared to some other things I could say, too bad, because that's how I would write it if I was writing about somebody else. I would say, with some empathy involved, but the most truthful thing. So that really helped me 
and sorting it out because I could say at various points when there was stuff that was difficult for me to write, I was like, well, if, if you were writing about somebody else and you knew that, you would put that in there. And I felt like I succeeded in the book in holding myself to that standard. Now, you know, at some points I may have pushed it even further because I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't hold back. I tell people this book is not a tell all, it's a tell most, you know, but, but there are some pretty difficult things in there. And in fact, when I sent it out to some friends, writer friends of mine, I sent out a draft for them to look at and comment on. One of the things that they said was they felt like I was a little too hard on myself in some places. And so I actually softened some spots mm. in the book to make it a little easier for the reader too, but to give myself a little bit of a break. Well, and you framed it earlier as being an addiction, you know, as much as drugs or alcohol or, you know, what we would traditionally think of as an eating disorder, you know, the drive to be too skinny and too thin, the way that any of these things are addictions. And I think by stretching it out over the course of a year, each month you check in and you say, you know, I either gained or I lost this many pounds. You show that it's an up and down journey and there are going to be steps back. You had a really tough year in 2015. You lost your dog. Our dog died, yeah. 2014 ended with the death of your sister and then you had a job scare. The book also... As a journalist, I really appreciated that it's also a memoir about your journalism career. Yeah. You came in kind of the traditional path that doesn't necessarily exist anymore. Um, it's and, harder and harder, yeah. Yeah, and you came up as a local reporter in Augusta and then bureaus for the Charlotte Observer. And But you've also done the startup, Sports of the— Sports on Earth. Sports on Earth, yeah. which failed like a lot of startups do. And then you've done the freelance path, and now you're podcasting. What have you learned in that process about the industry itself and then also, you know, how we consume these stories and what happens now that some of these traditional ways of consuming news are disappearing? Well, I tell students, I spoke to a class here at Auburn just before I came here today. And one of the things I said was, there's never been a better time to get your story out to the world. You know, now with the internet and podcasting and all these sorts of things, anybody has the tools to tell their story and publish it and put it out there. There's really been a harder time to get paid for doing that. <laughs> right. You know, and, and that's the crux of it is that almost all the traditional places where young people get jobs and where people sustain jobs at, uh, you know, big city newspapers or TV stations or radio stations, those kind of places, all those places are just shedding employees. And it's harder and harder and harder as a journalist for you to find a place that not only gives you some creative ability, but you can also pay the rent. Mm -hmm. You know, so I tell students now that it's, journalism is now going to be sort of like what life has always been like for like a music major, where you come out of school and you're waiting tables while you play on the side and kind of hope you make your own breaks. I think that's going to be the case for a lot of young journalists now. They're going to come out and they're going to have to be a barista somewhere or work construction or whatever and write when they get home at night and hope that eventually they can quit their day jobs. But that, that's a really hard thing. I feel lucky that I left the beach just before the wave hit. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been victim of some of that stuff, but I've had enough experience and I've built up enough of a, I guess, a body of work that it's been a little easier for me to find work in these tougher times. But the, the other thing I've learned about is that you have to be adaptable. You know, I have done magazine work, as you said, I've done podcasting, I've done, I've taught, you know, wherever it is that I can do something that feels meaningful or worthwhile to me and also make enough money to get by, I'll do it. And so I'm at a place now that's, I work for the NPR station in Charlotte. It's a full-time gig. I write books on the side. I feel like I'm in a pretty stable place. 
that could go away tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And all I have to fall back on is my storytelling skills. And that's what I, the other thing I tell students and, and other people in the business, that if you have the skills, whatever they are, my skills are mostly in storytelling. Other people have really good investigative skills or whatever, editing skills or whatever. If you have a really high level of skills, you could probably keep finding work. But if you don't, you can't just assume that because you've done it for 20 years that somebody's automatically going to hire you to keep doing it. You have to keep working on those skills and developing them and finding new ones. There's another point where your journalism career and your struggle with your weight coincide, and that's with readers and commenters and feedback. You, you write at one point that while you were a local columnist for the Charlotte Observer, you know, you would get feedback from readers that say, who are you to judge me? You know, you can't get your weight under control. Yeah. I'm curious about what that evolution with your reader has been, because obviously when you were starting out, the easiest way to get in touch with you would have been a phone call or to send you a letter. Now people can tweet at you as soon as they get angry. So has that gotten harder? Has it gotten easier to tune some of that criticism out? Well, writing the book helps me tune some of it out because, you know, there's nothing you can say to me now that I haven't already published, uh, you know, about my weight anyway. I think part of it is when I was a local columnist, part of my job was to have strong opinions on things. And when you have strong opinions on things, a lot of people are going to disagree with you. And some subset of that group of people who disagree with you can't think of anything substantive to say about what you've written or whatever. So the first thing in their mind is, ah, that guy. And I say that knowing, because I've read the emails, that what women, for example, or people of color or black women in our newsroom got was so much worse than what I got. But I got some and it stung, you know, because I know that uh, I'm an easy target for that. And it's correct in the sense that I am overweight and that is a thing that I'm ashamed of, you know, at the time. And so as I've done different things, you know, I've moved from having more opinions every week or every three or four times a week in the paper, to writing more feature stories that are more about sort of bigger feelings and bigger emotions and that sort of thing. And then also now writing this book that's all about the struggle. The criticism, whatever it is, tends to be more about the work now, which is fine. If people have disagreements with some I've written or the way I've said something, perfect. But the sort of like, uh, you're just a fat guy kind of things, that's very, very rare now in the comments and tweets and and stuff that I get. So that's been a good thing. Now, I also know that for other people, it's even worse. And so I feel pretty lucky in that regard. Coming up after the break, Tommy Tomlinson and I discuss fat shaming and diet culture. Well, and you do engage with broader cultural conversations in your book. You address diet culture head on and also the sort of big fast food industry that's constantly trying to sell you a 32-ounce small Coke. And there are other books in this vein. I'm thinking specifically of Hunger by Roxane Gay. Great uh, book. That lean more into sort of the personal acceptance side of things than I I think yours did. Uh, By the end, obviously, you've You've wrestled with some demons and, and found yourself accepting. What is it about the body positivity culture that you agree with and disagree with? I would say I am 90% on board with the, what is often called the fat acceptance movement. If you are healthy and happy in your body, regardless of what your weight is, how far that is away from what you know doctors consider a normal weight or whatever, if you're healthy and happy, then forget what everybody else thinks. Uh, and that's the part of the body positivity movement I agree with. The only issue I have is that I think probably some small group of people in that movement 
use it as an out to live an unhealthy life. And that was my problem. It wasn't just that I wasn't happy with the weight I was at. It was that it was going to kill me if I kept right. doing that. I think there are some people who are on the unhealthy side of the weight spectrum who sort of say, well, I'm happy with myself. And so screw what everybody else thinks. I'm going to, I'm just going to do this. And I think in that sense, they're maybe fooling themselves mm-hmm. and using that acceptance as a little bit of a crutch. But if you're healthy and happy, you know, I know people and my doctor knows people who are clinically 30, 40, 50 pounds overweight, but they can run marathons, right? you know? And so if you could do that, then you're probably fine. Well, and, and a lot of this fat shaming culture, you know, it'll go after celebrities who have gained 15 or 20 pounds who, right. who are not clinically obese or, or fat by any means. And I think convincing young girls and boys that being chubby is the same as being fat, I think leads to a lot of unhealthy things. But uh, I think you're right that, you know, sometimes it can go too far in the other direction. Yeah. And I think also, you know, you, you mentioned Roxane Gay's book and a couple of people have asked me as I've been on the book tour, why have women written most of these books? Because if you look at the sort of the genre, probably 80% or more of those books are written by women. And the answer to me seems fairly obvious, which is that women have always paid a more of a price for being overweight than men have. So, you know, the the term among the youth these days, as I say, being a 50-some-year-old guy, <laughs> you know, is like dad bod, right? right? So if you're if you're a guy and you have 20 extra pounds, it's considered charming. For women, that's not considered charming. Right. And women have, have consistently paid harsher penalties in the workplace and dating life, wherever, for being overweight. And so it seems obvious to me that's why women would feel more anger and fury about this and write more of these books. But it's obviously a, a problem for both sexes. Well, and her book and some others like it are interesting in that she roots it very directly in trauma. Um, she was a victim of a horrific sexual abuse as a, as a child. That was not the case for you. You you write that you otherwise had a pretty happy life. In some ways, it's geography is destiny, that the South may have helped shape you who you are, literally. Well, it didn't hurt. <laughs> I, mean, they, uh, I mean, I grew up in a family in South Georgia where everybody before my generation had worked with their hands. My mom and dad grew up as sharecroppers when they were children. And I think when you talk about these big cultural trends, one of the big trends that I think has affected weight in this country as much as anything is that shift from blue collar work to white collar work, where our parents and grandparents used to work in factories and in the fields, and now most of us work at a desk. And that lack of manual labor and eating the same meals or even more, there's an obvious conclusion to that. And so, although I, I will say in the South, we sort of romanticize that we eat these giant meals that other people don't, but other people do too. Yeah. You know, Italian families or Greek families or whoever, whatever kind of group you come from, in most of those groups, there's a tradition of the big family meal and the stuff that they eat is not usually good for you. And it's, you know, but it's so good, you can't put it away. And the other thing that goes on is that over time, especially with that move from sort of rural to urban, blue collar to white collar, those meals used to be meals about survival, mm-hmm. and now they're about celebration. And so they carry this big symbolic weight to them. And so it's hard to turn down your aunt's macaroni and cheese because it's not just macaroni and cheese. It has a history to it. It has a meaning to it. And it's something that is part of the, of the family. And so those big meals in my family 
certainly were carried great symbolic weight. And so it was hard to kind of pull myself away from those things. Well, and you talk about peanut butter logs that your sister had made? Yeah, my sister at Christmas, uh, before she died, made these peanut butter logs, which are, I have a, there's actually a recipe in the book for them. It's just like peanut butter and coconut and all these other bad things rolled they up. They sounded delicious. And then, you, and then you dip it in chocolate. It's sort of like the ultimate homemade Reese's cup. Yeah. And they are spectacular. And she made dozens and dozens for Christmas every year before she died. And that was a huge thing in our family to get out at the end of the meal, those peanut butter logs and pass them around and talk about them. And there was family lore involving them and all that sort of thing. And so that's not just a dessert. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's part of our history. And you mentioned that it's not strictly Southern cultural identity that eats food like this, but there's this part where you're talking about uh, when you were doing your Neiman fellowship in Harvard, that living in a big city, whether it's Atlanta or Nashville or Boston, makes you more active just because you walk places. I remember living in Chicago that I never drove a car, whereas in parts of the South, driving everywhere and the only restaurant in town might be a Jack's, which I love Jack's, but <laughs> but it does, I guess, affect your life some in the long run. But another point that I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about is school lunches. Part of your weight gain as a child was you would get sometimes two or three sandwiches. Yeah, I would sneak through the line. Well, not sneak, I guess. At my high school, you know, you could go down, you could get the traditional tray hot lunch, or you could get a sandwich. But the line was just, you would get a bag that had the extras in it, like whatever it was, a day coleslaw or whatever. And then you would put a sandwich in the bag. There was nobody there to like oversee that. And so I'd stick like three sandwiches <laughs> in the bag and roll up the bag and pay the same. So it's basically stealing a couple extra sandwiches a day and didn't think twice about it. But it felt great. I was getting more for my buck, you know, and I was getting these big meals. And so that's, you know, I've always, you know, when it came to food, went for the extra thing. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a, a friend of mine once said that when he had pizza, if he has two slices, he feels perfect. If he has four slices, he feels terrible. And he always has four slices. <laughs> and I said, well, I often have six, you know. So <laughs> so, um, so that sort of overindulgence right. in this incredibly good stuff certainly contributed to, to my game. We've had the latest sort of foray in this seemingly years-long fight over school lunches and school cafeteria food. Um, the Trump administration said that they are rolling back some guidelines that were put into place by the Obama administration. Is that something that you think would have made a difference? Would healthy meals at school as a child have affected you in the long run? Or is that would you have gotten extra handfuls of carrots? <laughs> that, that's a good question. I, I think probably, and I think certainly today still, most kids who want to eat unhealthily can find their way around it. There's nobody standing over a kid saying, you have to eat this. If that's what's available, they'll bring in potato chips or they'll sneak candy bars or whatever. I think kids will do that. But it often is for people who are not naturally sort of devious in that sense, you know, if they'll eat what's often will eat what to put in front of. And so if that's something more healthy, some portion of those kids will eat healthier. And so I think it's a, a really good thing to have healthier school lunch menus. I remember even our regular school lunches were pretty unhealthy and terrible. They would be like barbecue sandwiches or pizza or something like that with like a little terribly unseasoned vegetables on the side that, you know, were not made in any way that anybody would want to eat. And so to the extent that people can make healthier food available to kids, some of those kids will eat it. And some of those kids will be healthier as a result. You know, the problem with that is that it's often more expensive. Mm -hmm. It's often harder to find 
fresh food, especially in more isolated areas. Yeah. And so sometimes the the cheap, easy stuff is what you know kids will eat and what you can afford to put on the table. You've gotten the chance to travel all around the South as a feature writer, but also interview interesting people from around the South on your show, Southbound, which if you like the record interview, you would love Southbound. I've been kicked myself sometimes and found that Tommy got to a guest before I, I did. And so it's <laughs> There's one lots of my favorite room. shows. Yeah. <laughs> Are you seeing a shift in the South right now? You know, a lot of a time a few years ago to the big feature on Stacey Abrams and, and the changing South. Obviously, the Stacey Abrams change was a little bit overstated, but we are becoming the mecca for filmmaking and for always have been for music, literature again, and political change right now. North Carolina being ground zero for a lot of that. What's your take on the broader South at the moment? I will have the optimistic part for the end. But the first thing I would like to say is that I think one thing that's happening in our country is that, unfortunately, the rest of the country is becoming more like the old South. And Trump's election mm-hmm. proved that, you know, um, my friend Spencer Hall, who's a yeah. great college football writer, but also writes about everything. You know, when Trump was elected, he said, well, the rest of the country, welcome to our world. You know, a, a sort of quasi-populist, loudmouth, you know, that's we've seen a million politicians like that. Mm-hmm. And they just haven't been elected president before. Right. You know, that guy, Trump could have won Louisiana governor like a million years ago. <laughs> you know, I think, unfortunately... The divisions, racial and class divisions that have always been pretty prominent in the South have now sort of bled out and we're always there in the rest of the country, but Trump has made them all more apparent and he has enhanced them. So unfortunately, I think the rest of the country is what we have been trying in the South very hard these last few decades to not be anymore. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden this guy comes along and makes everything that way. And so I feel like the whole country now we have a lot of mending and repair work to do. But I think that's already happening here. And in some ways, we may be ahead of the rest of the country on that. The South is certainly, in many areas, more sort of cosmopolitan and diverse. That was, it's always been diverse. It's just people have sort of stayed in their places right. in one way or another. But now, not just black and white, but people from all over the world come here for the jobs and they come here for the weather. And they come here because there is something more welcoming in a weird way about the South and in other places. They feel more at home here. People do say hey to each other on the street, even if they won't invite you to their house <laughs> or they won't vote for you. If there is a, a vibe here that's different than in other parts of the country, and people are drawn to that. And I also think a lot of the people whose families left in the Great Migration, a lot of the black families now, those people's kids and grandkids and stuff are starting to come back. And they are enhancing and enriching the South in a lots of ways. And so I think we are making lots of progress. Now, having said that, you know, you just drive through the countryside and you see the Confederate flags and you see, you, know, you talk to people and you see that those same old divisions from a hundred years ago here. And I, I feel bad about saying this because my family has really rural roots. They're from the country. And I feel like the bigger divide in our country now is not so much regionally, you know, like the South against the North. It's like people from the city versus people from the country. And those are have become two Americas in a way that really makes me sad. People who with progressive ideas, progressive prospects, it's really hard for them to live in the country mm-hmm. nowadays. There's some, and people who are pretty conservative find it hard to live in the city for lots of reasons. And so, you know, we're in Auburn, Alabama, which is not a big city, but it's still pretty cool downtown. There's stuff going on here. There's a progressive part of it. So you get two miles out of town and it's very different. 
And that's the case everywhere, not just in the South. You know, I've talked to Patterson Hood, lead singer of the Drive-By Truckers from a podcast a couple weeks ago. He grew up in Alabama, lived in Athens, Georgia for a long time. Now lives in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And he says, you drive five miles outside of Portland, it's just like driving five miles outside of Athens. You know, that countryside is very different. And I think that's the big divide in some ways that some smart leadership will find ways to bridge that gap because that's a gap that really needs it. Well, and I think particularly in the sort of national conversation about rural voters, there's sort of the default assumption that rural means white. And in the South, right. I drove to Auburn from Tuscaloosa. It was hurt me every step of the way getting here. I'll feel the relief going back to Alabama. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it takes me through the black belt and you sort of see the rural white Trump voter and the rural black Democrat. That's true. Yeah, there is certainly a strain out there, especially among the black folks who live in the rural areas. It is different. And so figuring out, like you said, how that divide is going to be bridged will be will be the question. Let's talk about Auburn and Alabama, because at one point you were pitching a book on the Auburn and Alabama divide. Is that is that right? Harvey Updike I and did. all of that. So I wrote a story for Sports Illustrated back in 2011 about Toomer's Oaks and Harvey Updike. And, you know, at the point that I came into the story, they discovered what happened and the trees were dying. And I came and spent quite a bit of time in Auburn, which I came to really like. I'm a Georgia guy, so I say I root for Auburn 364 days a year. Okay. <laughs> um, and really, you know, even from afar, growing up in Georgia and being a big SEC fan, came to realize that there's nothing like the Auburn-Alabama rivalry, certainly in America. It is the most hateful, the most vicious, the most sustained in, in terms of every day, all day, all year long. There's a crescendo at the Iron Bowl, but it's every day. I, I thought that my agent disagreed. I mean, well, he agreed that it would be a good book. He just didn't know if it would sell enough. Oh. But I think that idea of where those rivalries come from, and especially in a place like Alabama, where there's no professional team to root for. Those teams are so tied to the identities of people, even if they didn't go to this, either school. And it's so meaningful. Alabama winning the Rose Bowl in 1926, sort of was like this big moment in the South, where the South felt like, at a point, it was a very low point, you know, post-Civil War, all those sort of things, where people in the South felt like, we are worse on that we can compete with the rest of the country. And then Auburn came up and became this like little brother, but this legitimate challenger to this identity of Alabama. And, and there's just no other state where there's two schools where from birth you have to pick and it follows you your whole life. And so I am endlessly fascinated by the rivalry. And what I pitched was, I just want to spend a year between two Iron Bowls just falling it day in and day out. And they didn't think that so if somebody, if somebody, <laughs> if somebody out there, well, as my, as my agent said, you would sell a hell of a lot of books in Alabama. Yeah. But you have to sell enough for the rest of the country, too. So your next book is on dog shows? It is. It's totally, totally different. I'm doing a book on the Westminster Dog Show, okay. which is another thing that's always fascinated me. We've had dogs in our lives. I've always kind of been around dogs. And what's interesting to me about the dog show is that the dog show is what's called a conforming show. And so the point of the show is there's a standard for every breed. Basically, like they have measured and decided what the perfect Irish setter is. And so they measure all the Irish setters until they get the one that is closest to perfection, right? That's what they're judging. 
And in terms of like how far apart their eyes are and what is the distance between the front paws and the back paws, all this weird stuff. What people love about their dogs in real life are the imperfections. Right. How quirky they are, how strange they are, all that sort of thing. And so it's like in a very similar way that a beauty pageant measures things that in real life you don't want maybe a partner for. Somebody you might want to look at, but you wouldn't necessarily want to marry or something like that. In the same way, this dog show is about these perfect dogs that nobody would really want in their lives. <laughs> you know? And so, and, and so I love that tension yeah. between these two things. Now, the dog show world is also a really quirky and interesting world. And the dogs are great because mm-hmm. you know, every dog is good. And the, my favorite thing I found out in doing my research, which I've just started doing, is that if when you go to the Westminster Dog Show, even if you just have a ticket, they keep all the dogs backstage and you can go back and pet the dogs. And so at any given time, like half the people in the stands are actually backstage <laughs> petting the dogs, which is awesome. And so in a couple of weeks, I'll be going up to New York because the Westminster Dog Show is in early February. And so I'll go do that. And I'll actually probably go to that a couple of times. And it'll take maybe two years to before there's actual book on that. But I can't wait to explore that world. Now, when you say that people are quirky, how, how true to life would Best in Show? Best in Show, I don't know. That's, what, <laughs> okay. that's part of what I want to find out. Because Best in Show was so great, and it felt so real. And, you know, based on, like, the real dog shows I've seen, that's part of what I'm going to find out. Well, to close, you know, I want to circle back and talk a little bit about what worked for you and what, what you would encourage other people who are struggling with addiction to do. Because you talked about, you know, these crash diets don't necessarily work, and it was kind of the resolve to do it slowly and steadily. Have you been able to maintain that? And what advice do you have for others? I have. I've gained a little bit back lately because we've had some family issues that have caused me to have a little stress in my life. But yeah, I lost over 100 pounds at one point. And and I'm back sort of on the right path again from that. What I do is very simple. You know, I have this Fitbit. I'm on like my fourth one because I keep burning them out. (laughs) And a Fitbit or some device like that measures uh, how many calories you burn every day in terms of your steps and your exercise. And all that sort of thing. But you can, you don't need to spend a dime on this. You can estimate every day how many steps you take. You can buy a pedometer for like two bucks that can mm-hmm. help you figure all this stuff out. Fitbit also has an app where every day I type in everything I eat and it tells me how many calories I've eaten. So if I can keep the calories I've burned, that's more than the calories I eat every day. That's all I'm looking to do, basically. If the margin's good, fantastic. If the margin's small, fine. Um, as long as I'm in sort of the positive area. When I first started doing this, my doctor said 91% of the people who lose a substantial amount of weight eventually gain it all back. Wow. And he said, your job for the rest of your life is just to stay in the 9%, even if it's like a pound a month. And that's basically what I've done. I've stayed in that 9%. I've lost a little bit every month. Now, I don't get the immediate payoff, right? People who see me and see me two weeks later, they can't really tell I've lost any weight. Whereas if I was on some crash diet, they might go, wow, you look amazing. You know, it's a different way of doing it. But I've found, and I think most science on this subject has found, that it's the only way to do it sustainably, is to lose a small amount of weight over a long period of time. That's not very comforting to people who want to get it all off now, uh, including me. But it's really about the only way it works. What I tell people is how you manage to do that almost doesn't matter as long as it works for you. But the big thing is, and I think we talked about this a little earlier, is that if you have a lot of weight to lose, you first have to figure out why you got to the place you got. 
because it will often be some emotional issue, like you said in the Roxane Gay book, some trauma, something you've got to figure out in your life before you can move forward. Because if you don't, no matter how much weight you lose in a given time, that emotional thing's still going to be there. And when you lose uh, hold of that, you're going to gain all the weight. And so you have to first figure out yourself, kind of who you are, what things trigger you in your life, all those sorts of things, and figure out how to work on that. And then the weight problem is then more of a sort of a math problem. It becomes much easier, and at least it has been for me, once I figured out the other parts mm-hmm. of my life that I needed to, to pay attention to. So what is it that you did learn about yourself? Well, I learned, among other things, there's lots of different things in the book. And I think with any person, it's almost always uh, different things, like a, a grouping of different things. For me, I think it was a realization that because I was so big as a child, I mean, I was a fat kid from the time I'm old enough to remember. I didn't really get to do a lot of the stuff that a lot of other kids did. I never learned how to ride a bike. My legs wouldn't work the pedals right. I never learned how to swim. I didn't do just a lot of the sort of rites of passage that a lot of kids did. I didn't, I wasn't good at climbing trees. And I feel like as I got older, there was this kind of little angry kid inside me who was pissed off all the time because he didn't get to have the childhood that other kids had. That sort of, to me, I think led to a lot of sort of emotional anger, things like that. I feel like I was, you know, not fulfilling my life, not doing what I should be doing, and my life not living it to the fullest. And I found that the only way I could soothe that boiling inside me was to feed it. And I didn't realize until much later, until actually when I was working on the book, that that's sort of what it was. But it was a pretty big epiphany for me that I realized there was this sort of angry kid who just didn't get a full childhood. And so what I do now is I try to do fun kind of kid stuff sometimes. Right. Like we go hiking and we go to concerts and listen to music when I should be working sometimes and just do f- more fun stuff that I used to do to sort of soothe that little kid. Because I think in some ways, just as an outside observer, the career you've had, the people you've gotten to talk to, you know, being in Athens uh, when REM was in their heyday. Yeah. Uh, going and, and watching the uh, men's Olympics team play and things like that. From afar, you would say, wow, he's living the dream. And to hear you talk about the inner struggle of the stuff that you felt like you were missing out on and, and still feel like you were missing out on. And I think anybody, very successful people have this stuff all the time. I quote in the in the book, so that you know, I talk about this idea of imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. like you think you're a fraud and the rest of the world's going to find out one day. Albert Einstein wrote a letter late in his life where he said he, Sometimes he saw himself as an involuntary swindler, like he pulled the wool over on everybody his whole life. It's Albert Einstein, you know? So if Albert Einstein deals with this stuff, then you and me, it's no surprise that we should deal with those unresolved whatever it is. And, and I feel like to, to deal with whatever it is that you might have going on, that whether it's something in your childhood or something as an adult or some problem in your current relationships or whatever it is, Whatever it is you feel like is holding you back or, or making you make bad decisions, you got to deal with it. And I think for 50 years of my life, while I was doing all those other things, I was pushing the hard stuff aside. And I think only in coming and confronting that was I able to sort of unlock finding my way to having a healthier life. 
Well, and in addition to Einstein in the book, you quote another great thinker, uh, Jason Isbell. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about the man who walks beside you, who is who I used to be, you frame that as being afraid of, you know, as you lose weight, losing the parts of who you are that you like. Yeah. Have you found that that has been the case? I've not found that's been the case so far. I'm, I'm feel lucky about that. I, you know, it seems like an insane thing to worry about, but I've always been fat. And so uh, one of the things I worry about is if I got in like perfect prim shape, would I become a jerk all of a sudden? Would I not be as nice to other people? Would I be arrogant? Would I lose some of the essence of who I am? Because I, I feel like I am pretty likable and, you know, I have lots of good friends and all that sort of thing. Would I become less likable as I become gotten better shape? So far, that hasn't been the case. You know, maybe we come back in five years and we'll interview again and, and you can tell me what you think. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but for now, I feel like I've kept the basic essence of, of who I am. And I'm still a big guy. Still have a long way to go. But I feel like I haven't shed any of the parts that I like about myself in order to make this happen. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And thanks for coming on the Reckon interview, Tommy. Uh, thanks, John. It's my pleasure. And that's all the time we have this week. Thanks so much to Tommy Tomlinson for his time. You can order his book, The Elephant in the Room, from any of your favorite independent bookstores, and you can subscribe to his podcast, Southbound, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was recorded on location by Reckon Radio producer Amy Yerkinen, and it was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like Reckon, follow us everywhere on social media and sign up for our newsletters. And hey, if you're feeling generous and want to support some Southern journalists, leave us a five-star review. That'll help us spread these great stories from the South. And until next week, be well.